Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the academic study of religions, we, of course, always try to present topics from a perspective that is as neutral and unbiased as possible. But at the end of the day, to be completely unbiased is impossible. Everyone has biases. Everyone has a nationality, a gender, an ethnicity, a religious affiliation that will inevitably manifest itself in the way that we write or speak about any topic, including, of course, in academia. Most of the time, this stuff is unconscious. It's not something that we choose to do, uh, but it's rather just an inescapable reality. And if anyone in any context ever claims to be completely unbiased about a certain topic, that's the kind of person you should be very careful with. But that isn't to say that objectivity and neutrality is a lost cause. Rather, the most healthy way to tackle this is to recognize that our background and our personality will inevitably affect the way that we write and the way we speak. And instead of trying to neglect that or act like it doesn't exist, we recognize it and keep a watchful eye on it at all times while trying to work through it and work against it. Perhaps nowhere is this problem more apparent than in the Western academic study of the Middle East, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. There was a name for this kind of scholar, a Western scholar who studied the Middle East, which was Orientalist, a person who studied the Orient, whatever that means. 
But the term Orientalist and Orientalism has, especially since the second half of the 20th century, come to have very negative connotations and instead is associated with very problematic kind of scholarship, problematic perspectives and uh, narratives about um, regions like the Middle East and is something that uh, academia is very actively trying to work against today. So what is Orientalism? What is so problematic about it? And why do commenters keep calling me an Orientalist? The word Orientalism, and the negative way in which it is understood today, is very strongly connected to a book written by the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, which was called, well, Orientalism. Published in 1978, this is one of the most important books of the entire 20th century. It revolutionized our thinking and approach to studying the Middle East. Said and his book is one of the central factors in Western academia today, in part giving rise to what is known as post-colonial studies and theories, and thus serves as part of the theoretical and methodological basis on which all contemporary research on this topic is basically founded. Now, prior to Said's book, the word Orientalist wasn't necessarily a negative one. Orientalist simply denoted a usually Western scholar who studied this thing called the Orient, a word that really means absolutely nothing at all, but is kind of akin to what we refer to as the East today. Not that that word is much better, but still. Primarily, we are dealing with studies about the general Middle East and regions that were colonized by the British and French, an important detail which we will return to. And make no mistake, there were a lot of really great Orientalists. Excellent scholars and researchers, they laid a foundation for a lot of important knowledge on these topics. And certainly a lot of these scholars were well-meaning individuals who had an appreciation for the cultures that they studied. But what Said pointed out was that the Orientalist project carried with it a lot of inherent problems. Problems that these scholars themselves didn't even realize a lot of the time. The thrust of Said's argument is that Orientalism, as it was at that point, served as a tool for colonialism. As we all know, the 18th, 19th, and 20th century was a time when European empires like Great Britain and France had colonized large parts of the Middle East and Africa as parts of their empires. This is a topic that comes up a lot because it's so important for all of these discussions. The colonial period is a central part of everything that is happening in the Middle East even to this day. And the Orientalists, especially British and French Orientalists, who studied this region and these cultures, often did so in a way that served to quote-unquote control through knowledge. The whole Orientalist project, um, consciously or unconsciously, was often based on the assumption of a European superiority. They, of course, operated from a place of power, and in the process, they uh, constructed and helped strengthen narratives about the Middle East that were very uh, problematic, uh, condescending, and often inaccurate. First and most general of these is, of course, the very construction of the concept of the Orient or the East in itself. The whole idea that there is a somehow unified, quote-unquote, East that has certain characteristics and, most importantly, stands in contrast to the opposite concept, the Grand West, creates divisions that have been very destructive and still remain to this day. It is a very human tendency, of course, to create in-groups and out-groups. By defining who the other is, we are simultaneously defining who we are. Are, and this is kind of what's happening here with Orientalism and, and, uh, and uh, colonialism. That in these narratives, by constructing the East 
as the other, we are simultaneously also creating this concept of the, the superior West as standing above this other of the East. We still hear people refer to this thing of the great Western civilization and similar terms, and this is very much still a remnant of the colonialist or orientalist project. The Orient is the passive other, the object who lacks self-determination and reason, and who needs to be taught or saved by the active subject of the civilized and rational West. Recognize this kind of rhetoric? It definitely is very much still alive today in various different contexts. We in the West kind of stand as the gold standard of reason and development, who needs to help the inferior other to become equally sophisticated by often becoming like us. This was the main criticism against the Orientalists. They, even if they didn't mean it themselves consciously, they contributed to this dichotomizing worldview and this distinction between East and West, which became a tool for the colonialists to have a kind of theoretical basis upon which to see themselves as superior and as having the right to rule over the irrational other, that is the East. The whole idea that there is a West or a Western civilization, which is so often talked about, is very much a kind of result of this kind of rhetoric by colonialists and Orientalists. Not only was this very general dichotomizing the problem of Orient Orientalism according to uh, people like Said and his, uh, his admirers, but also the more particular ways that the Middle East would be portrayed um, in various ways by the so-called Orientalists. The so-called Orient was often exotified in various ways, both negative and positive. People of the region were seen as primitive, undemocratic, and irrational. A word that is often used today is backwards, which uh, is kind of a similar vibe. For example, Muslims and the religion of Islam was often portrayed as being inherently violent, as being more prone to fundamentalism, and of basically being incapable of changing ideas that still hold sway in Western consciousness today. The region's people were seen as being sexually unhinged, its women being heavily sexualized and portrayed as very promiscuous, as opposed to the modesty of Western women. This narrative in particular, of course, changed completely in the mid-20th century and was turned upside down. Suddenly, Western women were free and those of the Middle East were oppressed and controlled. The important part is that we are doing things right here and those people are doing it wrong over there. A lot of the Orientalist stuff has survived into popular culture as well. For example, some of the most classic translations of the Thousand and One Nights, or Arabian Nights, reflect this very well. The classic translation by Richard F. Burton is of the typically exotifying and Orientalist type, over-sexualized, highly problematic in its portrayal of its characters, etc. I have his translation, of course, so I'm guilty of this, but still it's important to keep this in mind. Burton himself also exemplifies this archetype by writing many travelogues about his adventures in the East, perhaps the most famous of which being his personal narrative of a pilgrimage to El Medina and Mecca, in which he retells the story of how he went to the holy cities of Islam under disguise as a Haji Abdullah, which, you gotta give it to him, is kind of hilarious. As is often still the case today, when the Orientalists spoke about the Middle East, they did so through their own words and through their own interpretations. 
Now, make no mistake, many of these scholars were brilliant researchers and wonderful scholars. They often learned the languages of the cultures that they studied. Uh, they often showed a great appreciation and admir admiration for these cultures. It was not like they were evil uh, people with evil intentions. They were often well-intentioned, great researchers. The people actually spoken about rarely get to represent themselves or speak about or present their own customs or beliefs. Instead, they remain silent objects to be studied instead of being subjects that can speak for themselves. When Edward Said published his Orientalism, it shook things up pretty dramatically. Um, it wasn't without its critics, of course. Many academics criticized it. They felt attacked, um, and they felt like Said was portraying a caricature of the Orientalist, presenting a very one-sided image of these researchers, these scholars. But what Said was doing was not to attack the credibility of these scholars. Rather, he was pointing out that knowingly or unknowingly, the work of these Orientalists often contributed to the colonialist narratives and the colonialist project, and for that reason needed to be uh, reformed or changed. And that is largely because of Said and his book and the subsequent developments that the word Orientalist and Orientalism has come to have very negative connotations since then. Basically, no one calls themselves an Orientalist anymore, and it is associated mainly with problematic narratives and problematic perspectives on the Middle East and non-European cultures. In some circles, being called an Orientalist is almost like calling someone a racist, basically. But this also shows you how much this had an impact on academia as it stands today. Everything since the late 1970s, when the book Orientalism was published, has basically been a response to it, or at least tried to incorporate those critiques uh, into its, uh, its studies or its research. Indeed, the entire theoretical and methodological field that is known as post-colonial studies owes a lot to this general uh, trend or this general movement. The institutions in Europe and America studying the Middle East today do so with these perspectives in mind. What this means, especially in a postmodern environment, is that researchers are self-reflexive and self-critical. That we have to recognize our inevitable biases and how our backgrounds affect what we write, and rather than try to hide behind a veil of quote-unquote objectivity, we acknowledge these facts openly and try to work around them. This also means that when discussing a certain culture or a certain religion, for example, people who actually belong to that culture or that religion is often given more room to speak. Why are we as outsiders to sit at a distance and explain to, to you what these people over here are doing rather than having those people actually speak for themselves? Instead, there is in academia a general movement towards integrating non-European voices into the, these kinds of contexts more and more. It still isn't perfect, there is still more to be done in that sense, but there has been a general uh, trend of moving more in that direction. Indeed, this was originally one of the main purposes of this channel. I and this channel can in a way be said to figure within a post-colonialist paradigm. I always try to uh, work against the old problematic uh, depictions of uh, cultures and religions of the Middle East, for example, and to integrate the voices of people from those religions in how I speak about those religions. Being trained mostly in a post-Orientalist environment, I am always kind of wary about talking about cultures and religions other than my own, which is, after all, what I mostly do on this channel. 
But at the same time, having this critical attitude towards Orientalism does not mean that we disregard everything that the Orientalists did or the accomplishments that they actually achieved. Or indeed that white scholars from Europe or North America aren't allowed to study non-European cultures. I see a lot of this kind of rhetoric in the comments and on places like Twitter. There's a general tendency to disregard any uh, Western scholars uh, talking about the Middle East as being Orientalist and therefore automatically having some evil agenda to spread misinformation about the subject. But this dichotomization is also dangerous. As I said earlier, creating this kind of strong division between West and Middle slash East, place into the colonial narratives of the Orientalists themselves. And if so-called Western scholarship is dismissed on the basis of Orientalism, we create an unhealthy environment of division rather than one where mutual conversation and cooperation can take place. If we do so, then both inside and outside voices can be allowed to intermingle and help push forward our search for knowledge, which is what all of this is about in the end. This dismissive attitude towards European and American scholarship also fails to take into account that things have indeed evolved since the 1970s and that academia today is very concerned with working against Orientalism as such. That isn't to say that the problems of Orientalism is rooted out or that they don't exist anymore. All intellectual traditions always stand on what came before and is built on it. This is why it's so important for scholars today to keep these things in mind, um, to, to know about the problematic background of some of these fields that we study, and to know about our own biases and our own backgrounds, to always keep that watchful eye over ourselves when we do scholarship. It's no surprise that a book like Edward Said's Orientalism is basically required reading for anyone who enters this kind of field. There's a lot more to say on this topic, as always, of course, but these are the basics of what the word Orientalism or Orientalist uh, usually mean. It started out as a term basically for scholars who studied the so-called Orient, which usually meant uh, the Middle East, but it could also be a, a broader term. But uh, mostly we're talking about people who studied places like the Middle East and Africa. Um, those were the Orientalists and Orientalism which wasn't really used at that point, but that could be basically a term for that kind of, of, of research, basically. Um, but in the mid-20th century, with developments like, for example, what I've returned to continuously is Edward Said's book, Orientalism, and similar developments, um, the word Orientalism and Orientalist came to have a much more negative connotation. Instead, it came to be associated with very problematic um, narratives, uh, problematic perspectives uh, about the Middle East that were often uh, based in colonialist narratives of European or Western superiority, which created a lot of uh, problems both in academia and in uh, really public uh, discourse and public discussions about this topic. It's a, something that still remains very relevant even today. So I guess the key question in the end is, am I an Orientalist then? I guess that really all depends on how you define the word Orientalism. If by Orientalist you mean a person, a let's say a European person, who studies the cultures of the Middle East or Africa, then I guess indeed I am an Orientalist. 
even though I wouldn't choose to call myself one for obvious reasons. But if we define the term more narrowly as a person who espouses problematic perspectives on Middle Eastern or African cultures, someone who uh, contributes to colonialist narratives of East and West and of Western superiority or whatever, um, or generally just inaccurate depictions of the Middle East based on um, Orientalist perspectives, that's really not for me to say. I'd like to think that I try to be in life and in my academic career, and indeed I am kind of trained to be the kind of educator who um, takes a critical stance towards these kind of probably problematic aspects of Orientalism and instead presents these topics in a way that is appreciative and nuanced and inclusive. But at the end of the day, it really isn't for me to say, but rather for other people, like for example you in the audience, to determine how good of a job I am doing at that. I hope that you found this somewhat informative and that it gave you at least a couple of things to think about. Um, as always, um, I appreciate all of your support, um, and I, I wouldn't be able to do any of this without uh, all of you guys. So thank you so much, and uh, I will see you next time.